0: All righty, so we are uh, continuing our series on uh, grace, abounding grace, or grace abounding, uh, looking at the five what have been known throughout uh, church history as the doctrines of grace. We have two more to deal with. Uh, so just to review, we've looked at total depravity, which is sovereign grace needed, why we need God's grace to be sovereign. We've looked at unconditional election, how God conceived sovereign grace in His eternal plan, Last week, we spoke about limited atonement, or how sovereign grace was merited for each and every one of God's people fully. And then this week, we're going to look at the great irresistible grace, irresistible grace, or how sovereign grace gets applied to our lives. Uh, Has anybody in here ever watched as a new subdivision was being built in a community? Isn't that fascinating? Uh, I am watching it right now right behind my house, and if you didn't know that, there is a 600-home subdivision being built right behind me. They've now put up a fence, so I can't see all the progress unless I go and kind of peek around the edge, but, which I'm glad for the fence, but it was fun to watch as, you know, they moved all the dirt and transformed what was really a beautiful pine forest. <laughs> I'm sad about that, but they transformed a beautiful pine forest into streets and you know, avenues and then many different lots. Lots are built as they do these days so close to each other. House, right up against house, right up against house. Well, one of the things I've noticed that takes the longest and that takes maybe the most like permitting and all kinds of city issues is hooking these new houses up to the grid. Uh, and so they spent a lot of time. Uh, putting down the water lines, the drain lines, the sewer lines, uh, the electrical lines, which are now all being buried under the ground by TECO. Why do they do that? Why is it important to do that? It's obvious, right? Uh, If you have a home that is not hooked into the water or hooked into the electricity, this is not rocket science, you will not have water and you will not have electricity. Everybody a fan of water and electricity? Amen? Yes. Well, here's the thing, and this is the way uh, uh, John Calvin put it. If we don't have the Holy Spirit working, none of what Christ accomplished would ever benefit us at all. That's the way he puts it in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Without the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, what Christ, the second person, came into the world to do would be, if you could say it, would be completely lost on us. Uh, Our lives, just like new homes, have to be hooked into the system that Christ has laid down, that water supply that Christ has. Uh, You think about where the Mulberry water tanks are. There's a few of them. One of them's back there behind Mickey D's. Right there on Highway 60, there's all that great water there that's been treated. For that water to reach the homes way over here, there's got to be some kind of piping system. For the death of Jesus and the merits of Christ and the intercession of Christ, which we sang about earlier, to reach our lives with effectiveness, the Holy Spirit has to lay down lines and open up trenches into our hearts to let the power of Jesus flow. The day of Pentecost, in a way, was the great day of laying down the water lines and the power lines into the church. And every believer, from the moment they're first called to Jesus, gets gridded in to what God laid down at the cross and at the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was given. And so if you look at your bulletin, I want to talk to you today about this idea of irresistible grace because it means... That the Lord will certainly and effectually apply what Jesus accomplished to every one of his chosen people. That's what irresistible grace means. God will grid in every one of his chosen ones to ensure that they receive the salvation that Christ purchased for them. Well, there's three things that I want you to see. First of all, there's a purpose to this irresistible grace. There's a calling by which this grace becomes irresistible, and then there are the means of grace, which are uh, very important for us to use diligently in order to see the work of the Spirit go forward. So first of all, let's look at the purpose of grace. We're going to be bouncing back and forth between uh, the Romans 8 reading and the John 6 reading, so you might want to have two fingers or something or a bulletin or something in one place or the other. Uh, Starting with Romans 8, Uh, look at this brilliant statement of the Apostle Paul, all things work out for good for those who love God, in other words, for those who are called according to God's purpose. Now when Paul says all things work together for good, what things does he mean? All things, right? I mean, that's good. I was waiting for somebody to say it, you know. All things. Uh, this means not only things that look good, but all things, even things that are bad, all sorts of things. Uh, you can't really rule anything out, Paul says. If it's happening in the life of God's people, then you can rest assured God has some purpose in it, some good purpose. On behalf of his people. Uh, His people are defined here in two ways. One from their side. One from God's side. From their side they are the people who love God. They have come to love God. But then they can be described from another angle. From God's point of view. They are the ones that God himself has called. According to his purpose. Or according to his plan. That word purpose is important. It's one used very often in the Bible. Prothesis is the Greek word. Prothesis. Pro means beforehand or ahead of time. What does thesis mean? Y'all, y'all know that one. We use it in English too. What's a thesis? A purpose or a... What is it? A statement, a a plan, a planned or organized logical flow of things. That's why we call, like you write a paper in school, it's called a thesis. It has a thesis statement. This is saying that those who are called by God are called in conformity to the predetermined plan that God made from eternity. It's that predetermined plan which leads to the call which gives rise to the identity within the believer that they're someone who now loves God. Their love for God was born of God's love for them, which began before they ever loved God. Uh, that's got to be what he's saying because we know from other scriptures that nobody loves God by nature. Romans 3 told us that when we talked about total depravity it says, No one seeks God, not one. Um, And that might seem to you to be a massive overstatement, but I'm not sure. I mean, I think we need to think a little bit more honestly if we think that's a massive overstatement. Is there anyone who purely and simply for the sake of the Lord alone and not for selfish reasons ever seeks the Lord? According to God, no. God knows the heart better than we know it. And God says, nobody does that apart from me working by grace. This is Paul describing how he works by grace. He has this thesis that he has pre-planned from eternity that he then works out by sending his son to die on the cross. And then by sending forth the call to gather in those sheep that Jesus died to save. This is the logic of it. Jesus came to die for the sheep. The sheep were the ones who had been given to him by the Father in eternity past. He died for the sheep and for them, especially. And then it's the sheep who hear his voice and follow him and receive salvation. The calling of God is according to the purpose of God, which is what Paul goes on in the next couple of verses to describe. This is what we call the golden chain of salvation, where those whom God foreknew... The people he knew beforehand or set his love and attention on beforehand are those whom he predestined to be like Jesus. Or it says to be conformed to the image of his son, which is great based on the catechism we read earlier. We were made in the image of God originally. We lost that image at least to a large degree. It's become defaced But now in Christ, it's God's determination to remake the image of God in us through his son, Jesus. That's what he's saying. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined for that purpose, to become like him again. So that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, God wants a big old family where Jesus is the elder brother leading the way. And all the, the believers are brothers and sisters of Christ following his example by God's grace. And so God forms this golden chain. He, he predestines, and then he calls. He calls, and then he justifies. He justifies, and then he glorifies. Uh, if any link in that chain is broken, salvation falls to the ground. But according to Paul, not a single link can be broken. And this is once again bringing us to a great point. You should not think about the grace of God as if it were just God's ineffectual wish or bare desire that someone somewhere might possibly, by chance, be saved. That ain't the way God works. God's grace is his determined purpose to save his people from their sins, which purpose he had in eternity, which purpose he will ensure is finished in eternity. Right? That's what Paul is saying. Uh, everybody he predestines, he calls no more, no less everybody. He calls, he justifies no more, no less everybody. He justifies. He will glorify no more, no less. In fact, he uses the past tense of glorified, even though it ain't already happened yet. I like that. Some theologians call this the prophetic past tense. The prophetic past tense, and and the reason they call it that is many of the prophets in the Old Testament use the same thing, like Isaiah will foretell the future, but he'll say it as if it's already happened. Why is that? Well, because they, it's gonna, right? Because they are on an errand from the God who is able to, I mean, to ensure that it will happen. He's the one telling them. And if he's the one telling them, they can speak with such absolute certainty on his authority that it will, in fact, happen. All those predestined to be conformed to God's image will be glorified in God's image forever. Not one will be lost of all that the Father has given me, says Jesus Christ. Wow. Now this is what is difficult for us. Every time we wish something or desire something, it's not like that. Do you remember when you were little, maybe your first memories as a child and someone asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? you remember that? Do you remember what you said back then at six, seven, eight, nine years old? What did you say? Librarian. Librarian. Oh, that sounds great. I like that too. (laughs) I would love that. I remember I said fireman. Am I a fireman right now? No. Close? Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess there, there's an analogy there, but uh, not exactly, you know. I think after that I said policeman. Not exactly. I mean, that's not what I am. Right? Why is that? Well, we don't know what we want. That's part of the problem. And even as adults, by the way, we really don't either. We, we get a little better at it, but we don't still. But what's the other problem? We don't know anything about our gifts or talents at that age, really. Um, we get more knowledge about that as we grow. We don't know what God's will is. Uh, we don't have any power to actually affect the thing that we say. Do we? I mean, very little. You have some, but you have very little at the end of the day to affect what happens in your future. I know we we don't believe that because we believe in this sort of self-made person thing that we've convinced ourselves about. But um, that isn't really accurate. And I think most of us know that because we've often wished things that didn't happen. We've often been disappointed when we said, I wish this would be the outcome. And then "Eh," the opposite happened we've got to completely get that experience out of our minds when we think about God. God does not live off of dreams. God does not rely on Hail Mary passes at the end of the game in hopes that someone might catch the ball and win the game. God orders things God ensures that everything will work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is what we mean by irresistible grace. The grace of God is not just a, oh, if only someone would love me and be saved. No, God is a hunter. He hunts men and women down until he captures them for his grace. It was C.S. Lewis writing about his life story that said, you know, some people like to talk about man's search for God. But I know the truth about myself. He searched for me. Um, I was the mouse. He was the cat, is the way C.S. Lewis put it. Not the other way around. I mean, isn't that ironic that many times we feel like it's the other way around? You know, we feel like the cat and God's the mouse. Where is he hiding? I don't know where he's at. I'm trying to find him. He's looking for you. In fact, he's often approaching us at breakneck speed with all the power of his life transforming grace. And if you're a Christian who believes in Jesus, he has overtaken you already with that breakneck speed and has wrestled you most gloriously and most willingly, but he's wrestled you into submission. The grace of God achieves its intended result. Eternally fixed. What God has accomplished at the cross, he fulfills through the work of the Holy Spirit as he chases us down the corridors of time and captures us at the moment he has appointed for us to be captured. Wow. It's important to marvel at grace a little bit. There's a reason why we sing things like Amazing Grace and My song is love unknown, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Lyrics like that don't just happen if God is up there wringing his hands hoping somebody is going to get it together. Lyrics like that are sung by people who understand God comes after us. He hunts us. He's a fisher of men. And he's a good fisher, Bob. (laughs) He's better than you, and you're a good fisher. But God always catches his quarry. He makes us willing to come. Which we'll talk about in just a second. He doesn't bring us kicking and screaming into the kingdom. That's a false understanding of this idea. But make no mistake about it. He overtakes us before we're willing. To make us willing. Wow. Last time we talked about the atonement of Jesus. And how the death of Jesus Christ was not just a, a way to make salvation possible for everybody but it actually made salvation secure for all those for whom God intended it. That's true. I was talking to a few people after last week's lesson, and I realized that that idea of limited atonement is probably the most controversial of all the five we're talking about. And I know you probably still have questions, at least some of you, about what we talked about. Here's one of the questions I got. I thought it was great. Um, Why, then, does the Bible often use things like that they might be saved or that they should be saved. Like, for example, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, you know, but have everlasting life or might not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that's a good question. I want to actually address that because I think it relates to this. Look at every time the Bible says stuff like that. I want you to go look it up every single time in the New Testament. Uh, You'll find the word might means, it doesn't mean that things are contingent, all right? I'm going to get grammatical here. Is that okay? Yes. Might is a subjunctive verb. Uh, It translates a subjunctive verb, which is a, a verb of contingency. It says what will happen upon certain conditions. So I might go to the park if it's good weather, right? Uh, might always implies an if-then statement. If it's good weather, then I'll go to the park. I might go to the park if it's good weather. Notice every time the Bible says someone might be saved, I want you to look for what the if statement is in that verse. Okay? Because that will show you the condition that the Bible writer has in mind that must be met in order for the then to happen. For example, in John 3.16... What is the if that must happen for those who believe not to perish? Hint, it's not something we do. It's that God gave his only son. That's the if. So yes, there is a contingency in salvation. Salvation might not happen. But the might is fulfilled by something that God decides to do, not something that we decide to do. And I I tell you, go look at every one of them and you'll see it. It always hinges on God's action in giving his son or God's action in predestination or God's action in calling. It's never, if I do this, then that. It's always on God's side. It's not trying to teach us that we don't have to believe in Jesus. Of course we do. But it's trying to ground our belief in Jesus, not in ourselves, but actually in Jesus Right? And so when I preach the cross or, I, or, or when you share the gospel with somebody, please, please know and, and please go in the confidence that you're, you're sharing Christ to them, not that their salvation is contingent on something that they do, but that the salvation of all God's people is affected by the contingency that God fulfilled, which is what they are then called by faith to respond to. I'll say it again now because this is so important. Um, you're not. In other words, let me say it a different way. When I when I preach the gospel, I'm not saying, "Hey, believe that you can believe, and you will be saved." Right? We don't do that. That's not what I'm trying to say. Because you can believe in all kinds of things and you won't be saved. Here's what I preach: Christ died to save sinners. When Christ died, sinners were saved. When God gave his son, all believers were secured forever. Now believe in Jesus. That's different than saying, if you believe, then the death of Jesus will all of a sudden become effectual. No, the death of Jesus is effectual whether you believe or not. Belief is just a matter of how you're going to respond to the effectual work that God has done. And through that belief, God will bring that by the Holy Spirit into your life, like hooking your life up to the water station. The the flow of the work of Christ is going to flood into your life through your faith. But don't for a moment think that your faith should be in your faith. Your faith should be in Jesus and in God the Father and in God the Holy Spirit. Put your faith in God. That's why we don't preach a half-cross we don't preach a, Jesus died to make you savable. Now, go, now believe and then you'll be saved. No. Jesus died to save sinners. Whether he died for you or not, well, that's what we're here to talk about. Do you believe in Jesus? Come and believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you will come to know and you will come to live in the assurance, he died for me. That's what faith is. He died for me. But We shouldn't have to in order to make the gospel more attractive. We should not have to say, uh, well, the death of Jesus is only partially effective. You've got to add your bit to it to make it fully effective. As if it's a loaded gun that you have to pull the trigger yourself to get it to fire. No, the death of Jesus has already been fired from the chamber. And it's going to hit the target that God has aimed it at. Right? (laughs) Do Do not talk of possibilities and potentials with God. Talk of actual effects. And that will actually help people's heart be more secure in God rather than in themselves. That's what we're talking. That's why we're talking about grace like this. Is because we want to make sure that our faith is in the Lord, the sovereign God, rather than in human contingencies. Okay? So all the ifs in the Bible are tied, or all the thens in the Bible are tied to the ifs that God himself performs. Our faith is merely a way of receiving what God has done. It's not a way of adding to what God has done to make it complete. Am I making sense? I'm speaking of, these are big things, and I hope I'm making sense. Faith does not add something to the death of Christ that wasn't already there. Um, You know, I forget who said it, somebody... Uh, What I was talking to this week, you know, it's like you can offer someone, you know, say if I had a bucket of popcorn up here. And I said, come and get the popcorn. Anybody who will, come get it and you'll get as much popcorn as you want. It's a big bucket full of delicious popcorn, buttery. Come get it. Um, And then, you know, some of you might, some of you might not. Come and get it. But in order to um, make more of you want to come... It probably wouldn't help if I said, well, by the way, the popcorn's not even popped and I don't even have a microwave. Uh, you're going to have to come and by choosing it, you're going to have to blow on it really hard with heat to make it pop. It's, it's just in a potential form. But if you get your breath hot enough, it'll start to... And, and honestly, a lot of the modern evangelical preaching is that way. It's like the death of Jesus is talked so far down in order to make it seem so wide when in reality we should just say the death of Christ secures salvation it's already popped (laughs) come and eat and let God decide who comes and who doesn't and let God deal with each individual in their heart as he wills and and we'll pray for them we should never cease to pray for people because God uses our prayers to call his people to himself okay so Effectual calling, or irresistible grace, is highly related to the effective death of Jesus. Now, second point, the calling. I want you to notice how important calling is in this whole equation. Those whom he predestined, he also called And it's only after he calls us that he justifies us and then glorifies us. Or as Jesus says in John 6, the other passage I read to you, all that the Father gives me, every one of the people that the Father has given to me to save, will come to me. They will come. They will hear my voice and they will follow me and I will give them eternal life. They shall never perish. The calling is key. In fact, calling is that point of time in all of our lives when God captures us. Okay, if God's a hunter, if God's a fisherman fishing for men, calling is when we get on the hook. Uh, calling is when the dogs of heaven bay us up, to use a Polk County analogy. When we are completely encircled by God's grace and we realize we don't have anywhere else to go but to God and God begins to melt the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that we respond and come to him the hound of heaven as somebody once said the hound of heaven that's what somebody once called God chasing me down baying me up if you will putting me in a position where I just had to face grace that's what calling means in the Bible. Uh, this is why Jesus said in one parable, many are called, but few are chosen. There he's using the word call slightly differently. Okay? He's saying many are called outwardly. The gospel goes to many in the gospel call of the, of the preacher, of the individual Christian sharing the gospel. But few are chosen, therefore inwardly called. Few come to to, to Christ by faith relative to the number that are called because the internal call only comes to those to whom God wants it to come. Um, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God, okay? Don't even worry about entering it. You can't even see it unless you are born again. And and Jesus goes on to say to Nicodemus, when you're born of God, when you're born of the spirit, you're born from above. It's not what you do. Uh, The flesh, he says, produces just more flesh. So humans are not able to do this on their own. Only God can give it. But when God gives it, the heart is changed. You see Jesus lifted up on the cross and you embrace him with all of your heart. He becomes your salvation and you are secured in him. Irresistible grace or as our, as our confession of faith calls it, effectual calling. The calling of God that is not merely outward but that is also inward to make us willing and make us able to believe in the gospel, let's do a little Bible tour. Do you like these? I did this last time. Bible tour. You ready? Ezekiel 36:26. First one there. can read it if you want to. Yes, 36:26. Wow, Isn't that good? Effectual calling, um, irresistible grace. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Can stone feel anything? Can flesh feel anything? Oh, yeah. How does someone come under the sound of God's gospel? How does someone come to feel the gospel? How does someone come to be convicted of their sin? To, to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Not just his usefulness, but his beauty for me. How, how does someone come to not resist Jesus, but to welcome him into their life? How does that happen? God takes out a heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh. Ephesians 1.19. See if anybody can beat Jan. <laughs> she, she was super quick last time. And <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Very good. I mean, somebody got a lot of gold stars in Sunday school, right? Once upon a time. Yeah. <laughs> what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Wow. In other words, to become a Christian, it takes the resurrection of Jesus to be given to your life, so that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so you get raised from the dead. Wow, it's a big deal. Second Peter one three <laughs> do, 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 do. There we go. Good. How do we get knowledge of God? How do we get all things that pertain to life and godliness? Granted. He granted it. How? His divine, His divine power. Notice it doesn't say God went halfway. And praise the Lord, you went the other half and met him there. It says, His divine power has granted you all things needed for your salvation. Salvation is not a joint venture. I've said that many times in this series. It's not a joint venture. It is God. It is only received by us and then responded to by us by His grace. But even that is all grace. But make no mistake about it, the actual effective part of salvation is only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father um, giving His Son. And entrusting his people to his son, the son coming to die for those people, and the spirit coming to apply by the new birth, by the calling, the, the faith and the repentance necessary that Christ would become ours. When were you effectually called? This is a great question. Um, you know, instead of simply thinking about it like, when did I decide for Jesus? Okay, and I, I get it, that's part of it. Right? That's part of it. But instead of only thinking obsessively about when did I decide? When did I come around? Think about when did God call me? And begin to notice the things God was doing in the background before you decided for Jesus. And that'll give you wonder. If all I'm doing is thinking about, man, that day when I decided, okay, you know, whenever I'm in the time of temptation, I just remember, you know what, Stan, you shouldn't give in to this temptation because you decided. When you were seven years old. That doesn't really help me much. I mean, it's like, okay, I decided then, but what about now? What am I going to decide right now? I'm not sure. Uh, Instead, I should think, God took a hold of you at seven years old. Why? Because God was already working at you at six and five and four and three and two and one. And guess what? When you were negative 2,000. Jesus came and died for you with you on his mind. And guess what? When you were negative infinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew you and predestined you to be conformed to his image and planned it all. Now that helps me when I'm tempted, doesn't it? Because, oh man, I got the power of God behind me. And not just my, you know, that time when I signed a card or whatever it was I did, you know, or got baptized or whatever. Those are wonderful things, but they have a very limited ability to feed my faith because you can't feed faith with faith. You can't feed your faith with your faith. It becomes a vicious loop. Feed your faith with Christ. Feed your faith with God. Feed your faith with the Holy Spirit. That'll, that'll be what faith needs to grow. Everybody following me? Uh, it is very little uh, consolation for you to just sit there and encourage yourself on the basis of you yourself having faith. Encourage yourself by Christ. He loved you. He died for you. He gave himself for you. God loved you eternally. That's what's going to help you. Jan? Yes. Amen. Yes. Yes. Yeah, don't feed your faith. Yeah, yes, okay, so, right. Yeah, God gives us our faith, but you know what I mean. We have to actively, uh, we're called to actively feed our faith, meaning faith gets weak sometimes, faith is strong sometimes. Um, God has given us all these means of grace, which we're about to talk about in a second, which are to be used by us diligently to feed the faith. Now, of course, all the growth comes from God, but we're called to feed it. Now, what God doesn't give us is a whole bunch of stuff about ourselves to feed our faith. Like, that's a modern invention. It truly is. It's, nothing, it's not in the Bible at all to, for someone to say. I mean, did David, when he was going to fight Goliath, say, Man, I chose the Lord out on the fields. I am a faithful man. Now, I will go in my faith to defeat, defeat Goliath. No, he said... The Lord owns this battle. The Lord helped me when I beat the lion and took him by the beard. And the Lord will help me take this man by the beard. Right? Feed faith. That's what I mean by feed faith. All right. Just like, for example, your body. I mean, it's God who sustains your body in life, but you're still called to eat. You know, so you feed yourself spiritually, though the Lord, of course, is the one giving the work. Which leads us, perfect segue, thank you, Jan, to the last point, which is the means of grace. Um, The call which God uses to bring his people to himself and to give them salvation, to be justified, to be glorified, comes by means. Um, All right, let's talk about that. God does not... um, Well, God never works or hardly ever works outside of the means that he has appointed. How many of you were converted without reading the Bible or hearing it from anybody? How many of you became a Christian without anybody praying or without you praying? How many of you grew and, and came to a knowledge of your salvation without the church at all, being involved at all? Anybody? Nobody, right? I mean, there's never been an individual like that since God appointed those things in his word. Now, before he had laid down all the things, yeah, there were extraordinary ways that he worked. But after he had laid down the things in Scripture, he's never worked really outside of that. Um, And so... For an individual to be called inwardly by God, what what is required is that we, his people, and his ministers, go with the word outwardly to call them home. To share the gospel, to preach the gospel, to baptize people, to observe the Lord's Supper, to have church membership and discipline and all those things that are a part of the means of grace whereby God is gathering his people into his family and getting them ready for heaven. The means of grace do not work by themselves or by their own power or by the power of the humans that are administering them, but the means of grace, as this passage teaches us, work by the power of God. It is God ultimately who calls in the effectual way, although he never calls inwardly without using us to participate in the outward call. Right? And I, and I use the word never carefully. I mean, I really do believe he just doesn't do it. I mean, people don't get converted without the Bible. It, you know, you just don't see it. Um, because that is the, what God has given to convert people. And so it's our responsibility to read it, to share it, to preach it, to, to spread it, to be industrious. Uh, many times people accuse those who believe in irresistible grace of thinking that God will save people no matter what we do and we don't have to go share our faith because God will just save who he wants to save. And that is the worst idea I've ever heard because God appoints to save people through the activity of his people sharing their faith and preaching and teaching. It's, it's the same thing as saying, if God wants me to live, I'll live. I don't have to eat or I don't have to drink water. God wants me to live, I'll live. Well, yeah, it's true. It's a true statement. If God wants me to live, I'll live. That's definitely a true statement, but it's a false conclusion from that true statement that therefore I don't have to drink water. And so for us to think, I don't have to share my faith with that person. I don't need to pray for them. I don't need to send missionaries. The church doesn't need to preach. People don't need to come to church. People don't need to join the church. To say all those kinds of things is a misunderstanding of the way that God in his eternal plan has appointed to carry out his will. The means of grace used by the spirit of grace calls his people home. David said the battle belongs to the Lord, but he still picked up five smooth stones and put them in the little pouch. And grabbed one and put it in the sling and hurled it. Have you thought about that? Did you think about that this morning when you read it? Some people think about that story differently. That must have been a real big stone, some people think. Wow. Other people think, what a miracle, a tiny pebble killed a giant. Yeah, I don't know which one it is. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't a pebble but I'm also pretty sure that it wasn't a giant boulder either. There was both David's responsibility to do what God had called him encouraged to do and God's effective power at work together that caused the giant to fall. And when people become Christians and and are discipled, it, it involves both things as well. Our effort to do what God has called us to do, to be faithful to the diligent use of his means, at the same time there is the Effective working of the Holy Spirit to make it, um, to make it a reality. Paul said this. Um, this is from Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, pa- Apollos and Paul. What did Apollos do? He planted. What did Paul do? He watered. Maybe I have that backwards. Maybe it was I planted, Apollos watered. I don't remember which one it was. One of them did one thing. But God gave the growth, gave the increase. It's God who makes things grow. Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Now, should Paul have said, Well, God's going to give the growth, so I don't need to plant? Or should Apollos have said, No need for water, God will give the growth? No. It's crazy. God's sovereignty doesn't excuse us from doing what he's called us to do. God's sovereignty gives us courage to do what God's called us to do. This is what I want you to hear. When you read the Bible, you should expect God's going to do mighty things. When you you hear the Bible, when you share the Bible, when I preach, I expect God's going to do mighty things in people's lives. And And it ain't because of me that I expect it. But I just expect it to happen because God is that kind of God. He works as he says he's going to work. Uh, One uh, preacher came to Charles Spurgeon. He was a younger preacher. And he said to Charles Spurgeon, I'm having trouble. When I preach, no one gets converted. And Charles Spurgeon says, young man, what gives you the right to think anyone would be converted by your preaching? (laughs) And he said, well... I guess, yeah, I don't really expect that. And then Charles Spurgeon says, Well, that's why no one's converted. Because you don't come to it with faith and expectation that God will actually do what he said he's going to do. When you pray, what did Jesus say? Expect that when you pray according to my will, you will have what you pray for. Jesus is not giving us blank checks. But he's saying, know that when you pray, you pray to a God of irresistible grace. God will be faithful to carry out his will through the prayers of his people. Same thing when someone's baptized, when when we come to the communion table, we ought to come with expectation that God will be there and meet us and feed us and defend us and be with our children and help us bring those children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord God is as good as his promises, and his promises are always secure. This belief in irresistible grace has launched a thousand missionary ships and fueled a hundred thousand missionary planes and has also fueled many a sermon and many a sermon writer. And it has fueled many a Christian as well in their everyday sharing of their faith And praying for their neighbors and loved ones and brothers and sisters who don't yet know the Lord. No one is too difficult for God to change. Because we serve a God of sovereign grace. His word is worth investing in because God is committed to using it to do mighty things. Prayer is worth investing in because God is committed to doing mighty things through it. It's worth baptizing folks. Because Jesus said that's what he's going to use. It's worth having communion. Jesus said that's what he's going to do. It's worth singing his praises. God says he sits enthroned on the praises of his people. Believe it. Do it. Be confident. David Livingston, you know that name? Great missionary in Central Africa for many years. Said, well, yeah." his story is crazy, by the way. Have you ever read a book about David Livingston or read an article or anything? My man was in Central Africa for a long time and only had one convert. I forget how many decades it was. I think it was like two decades before he had the first convert. Most people would say, that was he should have left a long time before. What was he thinking? Well, we know that his work did end up creating a giant amount of fruit later, for sure. I mean, they still... Talk about David Livingston, I'm told, in Central Africa, uh, in lots of the countries in Central Africa. Well, you know what's inscribed on David Livingston's tombstone, which is in Westminster Abbey today? Jesus' words from John 10. Other sheep have I that are not in this fold. I must bring them in, and they shall be saved. And it's a known fact, David Livingston was a believer in these five points. He was a believer in irresistible grace. And that's what fueled him to keep preaching, keep speaking, keep doing his doctoring thing, which is what he mainly did in Africa, because he knew that the Lord was going to use his word effectively, even if it didn't seem like it at first or for a long time. That's what we need to have. Uh, We as Christians lose our nerve a lot because we start to think, it depends on our watering and planting. Oh, Christian, keep watering. Oh, Christian, keep planting. It is God who makes things grow. Amen.